For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The Locker Room with Sarah and Kelly, a podcast where women talk about sports. This week we're talking about doping. We want to ask a few questions like, are we approaching the problem the right way? Are there better solutions? But Kelly, first, let's talk a little bit about Katherine Switzer. Katherine recently ran the Boston Marathon again. I think she's run it a couple times over the years, but 50 years ago, she had her historic run where she had entered the race with her bib number and Jock Semple, an official in the race, had tried to physically take her out of the race. So 50 years later, and after doing so many amazing things for women in sports, she was back running again at age 70. And interestingly, she only ran 25 minutes slower than she did when she was 20. She ran a 420, which is, I mean, and it was pretty hot. So that's not terrible. For a 70-year-old uh, woman. She was not the first woman to ever run the Boston Marathon. Bobby Gibb was the first woman uh, like the year before and ran it the same year Catherine Switzer did, but didn't run it like officially. She just like banded it and jumped in. She often is lost to the history books, so we don't count her as much. She is lost. but And the interesting thing I think about this story is that people often credit Catherine for being the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, which in fact it was Bobby, as you say, but that the problem even that Jock Semple had when he tried to forcibly remove her from the course is that she had a bib because he knew that Bobby was running further up the road and he knew that Bobby had run the year before. And in fact, I think he had put even a separate women's bathroom in for Bobby. So he had kind of made allowances to have Bobby in the race. And as long as she wasn't official, he was okay with it. But for some weird reason, he got hung up on the fact that Catherine had officially entered the race. <laughs> under a false name. Under, well, under, I think she was KV Switzer. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's just, it's interesting to think that, you know, that women were not allowed to run the marathon, but somehow it was okay for them to run unofficially as proven by Bobby. Like, as long as we pretend that they can't. Right. Bobby also ran, like, a 320-something. or three, And I think one of the interesting things about her run that I've heard her say the first time she did it, when she was coming around the last, like, five miles, she thought to herself, it's better to look good when I finish than to go fast because this is going to be judged by everyone and I don't want to look like I'm dying. 
because then people will think women can't do it. And you're like, oh, well, it's probably true. Yeah, it's interesting back then what women had to think about. The great thing about Catherine is that, you know, when she sort of realized that, you know, how women were being treated on marathon courses and when she realized how bad it was out there based on this experience she had in Boston 50 years ago, she actually then dedicated her life and her career to making things better for women in running and sport. And so kudos to her. I think that, you know, she deserves the fame, but we definitely need a shout out for Bobby as well. I want to correct myself. She ran a 4.40 this this time around. So I totally take it back. That's terrible for a 70-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, pull your socks up there, Catherine. Okay, next in the news, Serena Williams has announced her pregnancy. It seems like there are a lot of athletes that are pregnant right now. Well, I mean, we both do triathlon. And in triathlon, I think there's been, what, eight pregnancy announcements from the top, like the world champions, the, medal- the Olympic medalists. And partially... I think this is because it's a post-Olympic year. Um, There's also some swimmers who have announced pregnancies. And and women's sports tend to overlap with Olympic sports more often than men uh, because that's how it goes. And a post-Olympic year is the time to get pregnant. So that's just kind of it's just kind of how it goes. But I think there's also something to be said to the fact that we are at the point where we have more athletes like Serena who are getting pregnant and then going to come back to the sport. Like this is no longer a, oh, retire, go off, have babies, move on with your life. You're done with the the athlete thing now. We're finally at a point where there are like a good number of women who are pregnant, rocking it and going to come back. Yeah, I think even in the last decade, we've seen a huge shift in attitudes towards pregnancy. When I found out I was pregnant, I was at a training camp in Australia and I then found out I was pregnant, started asking around some coaches, looking for stuff, information online about training during pregnancy. And I was really surprised at the different attitude in Australia about women being active during pregnancy. They were a lot less stringent about what they suggested pregnant women did. And I even even met an Australian swimmer who was doing kind of very close to threshold sets during her second trimester. I mean, it was stuff that we didn't see at home. No, people still don't really do that here. There's even a swimmer right now, an Olympic swimmer, Dana Vollmer, who is racing currently, and she's five or six months pregnant. And people are still, you know, is that safe? I don't know. Well, does she see it as though she didn't talk to a doctor, as though she hasn't like thought of this herself, which is what's always shocking to me, the way people fret over, you know, Serena winning, what was it, the Australian Open, three months pregnant, as though she isn't perfectly capable of figuring these things out herself. Right, exactly. Well, and actually, what I found kind of impressive was that Dana Vollmer, the swimmer, I think she went 27 something for a 50 freestyle at six months. So that's pretty amazing. (laughs) I definitely got um, beat very badly by a professional runner who was eight months pregnant at her local race one time. So we all know how that feels. And we do have a great A gripe of the week this week Uh, from British Cycling. This is a pretty good one, Kelly. I'm looking forward to. So British Cycling had some directions on how to coach women, some guidelines, some suggestions. And uh, and it it started making the rounds on Twitter um, because it was pretty amazing. They suggest uh, that you realize that all women may not be comfortable in clothing traditionally worn for cycling. That women might suffer from a lack of self-confidence to try something new. True. Um, they also suggest that uh, you create time within a session for social interactions and fun. Right. And that some female riders may prefer joining cycling just for the social or fitness aspects. 
My favorite, though, is that their very last point is don't assume a person's strength or ability based on their gender. You're like, mm, good point. Good point. What I think is so frustrating about this, along with being funny, is that it's not like this didn't come from a place of, of good intent. I get that that they want to reach out to women who haven't done cycling before and that statistically speaking, women often are beginners just because they don't have them because they've been told historically they can't do something because the society's told them it's very masculine, manly and like a pissing contest. And that there are a good number of women who want to do things because they are social or for other reasons than just the performance aspect. That is true. So I get that they were trying here. They were trying. <laughs> they were trying. We can give them a check mark in the trying box. Yes. But if we were going to not make assumptions based on someone's gender. If we're going to not patronize women. Because there are probably also men who are just doing it for the fun of it and who don't feel comfortable in clothing traditionally worn for cycling. Right. Exactly. I know a lot of men who are comfortable in, <laughs> in Lycra shorts. Exactly. I have a hype of the week. It comes from a sport check store in Calgary that has adopted multiple body types in their mannequins. So apparently they have mannequins that include a swimmer's body type, which I assume has big shoulders, a runner, which might be slight, a yoga mannequin, a lifestyle mannequin, though I'm not really sure what a yoga... A lifestyle mannequin is? Yeah, like what that is. Maybe they just have the same mannequins as usual and they've just labeled them differently. (laughs) My vision is that mannequins are always the same. They have their skinny and they have no muscle tone. So I think that they've tried to create a... Yeah, maybe like a mannequin with some glutes. Okay. So they get my hype vote just for, for trying. Oh, everybody's trying. Okay, let's talk about doping a little bit. A huge topic. It seems that this conversation has sort of increased a little bit in the media in the last year, I would say. Um, It sort of started before the Olympic Games last year when the Russian doping scandal came out, and it just never stopped. So tell us a bit about the Russian doping scandal. Yeah, I think leading into the Olympics, when it became public information that there was kind of such widespread doping in Russia and to a degree that it was state backed or state sanctioned, um, which is obviously still up for debate uh, to the point that the IOC felt they had to ban Russian athletes with like just a few exceptions. When all that came to light, it really brought to people's attention how systemic and how bad the doping is. And obviously the Russians felt victimized in this because their point was, it's not just us. It's also, Kenya and Ethiopia and Jamaica and the U.S. and it's it's everywhere. We're just keep you know we're just doing what we have to to keep up. Um, and kind of since then, I would say we've reached a crisis point in kind of the Olympic international sports in terms of people's confidence in in if if the agencies are doing the right thing, if we can trust them, if they're if we can trust the performances, if they really are clean athletes, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, it feels like a new level of awareness, really, in terms of doping. So, you know, it was there's you can go back to a time probably, I mean, when I was a kid before Ben Johnson was caught here in Canada, um, that, you know, we thought that all the Olympic athletes were clean, you know, on the whole. Was that just because you were a kid, though? I don't know. Probably, but I did actually read this in a legit art- article as well. Okay. That, you know, there would have been a time where we felt that the Olympics was fairly clean and there were a few cheaters. And then there was a level of realization 
where we realized that no, actually doping is a bit of a problem. And now I feel like this last Olympic Games really uncovered with this systemic problem in Russia that, oh my gosh, this doping thing can be really bad and is. Yeah. And I think actually that that's not bad. Like us recognizing these things, we have then taken a lot of steps in terms of the science of catching people, right? Like there's a reason one could argue that middle distance times haven't gotten a lot faster in the last 15, 20 years, right? Or that cycling speeds went down drastically in the last 10 years. And it's because like the science has caught up. Like we became aware of what people were doing. And by we, I'm talking about the people who are in charge of this kind of thing. And they developed tests and the tests have gotten better. And the biological passport was a really big step and it's not perfect. And there's still ways to get around it. But, you know, the awareness did really increase the side of, of, of this debate that's inter- that talks about catching people. Just for clarification, who are the organizations that you have? WADA, the World Anti-Doping Association. Um, who are the other organizations that are trying to catch people? Right. So I think that's part of the problem is that there really isn't clarity or any one agency where the buck stops, right? That owns this and is like, it's our responsibility. WADA presumably oversees everything, uh, but they really only oversee Olympics stuff. So there are plenty of sports that don't come under their purview. Um, and they are really only signatory. Like you can be a WADA signatory for your sport or your event or your agent, your, you know, your, your organization, but not everybody is. Um, and then every country has their own anti-doping agency, presumably, like the U.S. does, Canada does. Um, but plenty of countries, like their agencies aren't very good or they don't do regular testing, or they kind of... Or their agents help with the doping. Right. They're like, hey, we found these positives. Do you want to fix that? Like, Right. So that's not great. And then there's a lot of organizations, like, like we do triathlon. Ironman is outside the purview of the Olympics. It's not overseen. It's not a, you know, any one country. It's like, it's an international thing, but it's not an Olympic thing. So they have their own program. Um, anti-doping program and so there are other sports like that like uh, tennis um, does something similar the world marathon majors is you know the five major marathons they fund their own dope so a lot of times those private races organizations companies contract with WADA or with USADA or with another anti so it makes it all very complicated and I think that that's kind of part of the problem yeah well when you're selling sport for commercial gain there's not as much advantage to catching the doper. Interestingly, you brought up the WTC, the the company that owns Ironman. And I was on their list for a year and I never got tested. Despite training in, you know, high density training areas like Tucson. Where there's a lot of other people, yeah. There's a lot of other people there and it's cheap for them to sort of send out the wagons and test everyone at once. And I always thought when I went to Tucson, okay, I'm going to be tested now. Never. Maybe you weren't a high suspicious athlete. No, I don't know. I don't know why. It seems that they definitely do it based on, yeah, ease, you know, affordability. Like they they can hit a whole bunch of athletes at once. Um, they do it based on suspicion. And then they do it based on results. And then they also, like, it's kind of random. And so it's definitely, it doesn't give me faith in the system. It definitely makes it a little bit, um, you know, hard to hard to believe in. Which I think is a lot of like a lot of people have argued we need stricter testing, we need harsher penalties, we need to crack down, crack down, crack down. Like that's going to solve the problem. I think that that's only half of it, right? 
Yeah, we talked earlier about how a lot of the approach is about catching, it's like catching criminals, right? And then once we have them caught, we tend to sort of punish them, but also villainize them in the media and on social media. Okay, that's part of a partial solution, but that we often don't address how do we stop doping from happening in the first place. In the U.S., we have a war on drugs, right? Or we did. I don't know if we've, we're done with it. And uh, and that was all about stricter punishment, right? Like capturing the the people who were supplying the drugs and, and throwing them in jail for longer amounts of time. Because that the assumption was that would deter people. And it certainly works to a degree, right? And, there's, and so when you talk about doping, there's certainly that aspect of that argument that people are like, they should never be let back in a sport. Um, you know, we need we need stricter sentencing. Like this whole recent news about Tests from Jamaican runners that had clenbuterol in them were tested positive and they weren't made public. It was covered up. So like we we need to stop that. We need to punish these people. This needs to be public information. We need to not be covering up. We need to all of that. But then when you talk about like in the war on drugs in the US, we didn't do a good job addressing the demand side, right? We never asked ourselves why were they doing it in the first place? And could we make changes on a public health level that would make it easier for them not to do the drugs? And I think when we talk about doping, we have really, really skipped that half of the equation. Nobody, rarely, rarely, not nobody, but rarely do people talk about if we just made it really, really easy to do the right thing, more athletes would do the right thing, right? If you figured out why are they doing it in the first place, let's address that. Let's like, make the whereabouts system that you were in uh, easier to understand. Let's make it impossible for people to accidentally take something, right? Like then at least they could never claim that they didn't know. If we just did all those things, at the very least, we would get rid of everybody who is being rounded up accidentally or or didn't, you know, the only people that would be getting caught are people who are like really, really want to cheat. Right. What it would look like then would be, an education piece where every athlete who got an elite license or who was becoming an elite athlete in their sport would have to go through some kind of education process where they knew how to get the information they needed whenever they were taking, say, a cold medication or anything like that, where they can't claim ignorance because they've been put through some kind of exam. Triathlon Canada recently implemented something where anyone who had a pro card in triathlon had to go through a some kind of it was an online course basically now I'd been a pro for so long that it was kind of amusing but at the same time I thought you know if I was in my early 20s and just coming into the elite side of the sport it would be good because then I would know that I can accidentally take something through a supplement that was tainted or through a cold medication Yeah, right now, that kind of education component does not exist across the border in every sport. Like I did just get my pro card from the USA triathlon. And they were like, good luck. Here's a link to the WADA, you know, list of banned substances. And I read that whole thing. And I guess I'm supposed to memorize all 400 possible ingredients that could be in anything that are banned. Like I and and it takes like would be key. And I think knowing where to look it up. Yeah, there are sites, but I didn't know that. They didn't tell me that. There there are sites where you can be like, is this medication my doctor subscribed? Does it have anything banned in it? Right? You can look it up. But I had to like find that out from other people. And this isn't a huge problem. I'm not saying this is like the bulk of doping, but I'm saying that if we look at why people dope, and the majority of people dope because they think everyone else is doing it, because they 
the, the, the question was taken out of their hands, like the agency, you know, someone was just like, oh, here's a pill to take that will help you recover faster. And they think that they have to to keep up. Like those are the reasons why, right? And right now, what we've done is we've created a system where athletes who are in it, who don't want to dope, who just want to, you know, which I think is probably most athletes. Most athletes start a sport because they want to get as good as they can. But in this system now, they feel like they're more, that they don't believe in it, that they're more likely to get caught for accidentally doing cough serve than that someone is going to get caught for doing EPO. And so they don't have buy-in. Does that make sense? So that makes it a little bit easier in their minds to be like, well, I might as well do the do the drug if everyone else is, if like it doesn't matter anyway, if the system isn't fair, if like you want innocent athlete buy-in. And I think right now we don't have it and that that is creating like systemic problems. Right. I like that concept of innocent athlete buy-in where you inform and educate the innocent athletes, but also give them a chance to be logoed with like, I intend to be clean, you know? And I think there are some companies that are doing this right now, like allowing athletes to state their intentions to be clean in their sport at the outset. I do think, I mean, it is funny because obviously like no one's going to not sign on to that. It's like a loyalty oath. It's like, no one's going to be like, I don't intend to be clean. <laughs> like, yeah. That's true. But it's a way of basically getting all the athletes together as well. You know, one article I read said that athletes have the most to gain from clean sport and the most to lose from sport that's not clean, right? So sometimes these athlete-driven organizations might be, you know, the, the place for change where change can start. I think it's true. And I think we also should listen to them because I think the athletes, when the athletes are saying, um, we need these things to change, like both the very small things, like we need the whereabouts system online to be easier to update because too many athletes are getting whereabouts violations and that's absurd um, to like, we need a global, you know, when they say like the small things to the big things, we should listen to the athletes because there's no incentive to catch the internet at the international level, catch the top athletes because they want to make money. There's no incentive by sponsors necessarily because they want to sell their products. They want to have the fastest people. They want big, they want headlines, right? And then they would like, they don't want them to get caught. They, they want, want their be- athletes to be clean. And so it really comes down to like the only people that there is an incentive really to like make sure the sport's clean is the people actually on the line because they've put a lot of time and sweat into it and it would really suck if that all went to waste. So I think that the cracking down and the catching people is getting better, though it still has a long way to go. And a lot of that is going to come from the, like we have the way or we increasingly have a way to catch them, but we don't have the will. And so we have to push the organizations and the companies who do have that will to do it But then on the other hand, there's also the half of um, the stopping people from doing it in the first place. And I think that half really, there's a lot more room that we could make improvements. I also think, you know, that you can still win without doping. So that's important, right? Like, like Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for sport moving forward that we're able to believe that we can win without doping. Otherwise, I am training a lot for no reason. That's really important to sport existing as we know it. Well, Chris Stafford is here now with some news from the other programs that we have here on WISP Sports. 
On the latest podcast episode of Wisp World Canada, the magazine show that features the top news of Canadian sportswomen, former rugby international Maria Sampson and triathlete Suze Flanagan talk to tackle football coach and former quarterback Sadia Ashraf about opportunities for women in the sport and becoming the first assistant coach of the Canadian women's national tackle football team. Offshore sailor and personal trainer Liz Wardley concludes the six-part Q&A video series on fitness for offshore sailors. And the Horse Show podcast features an exclusive interview with the doyen of dressage, Germany's multi-Olympian Isabel Werth. That's all on the website at wissports.com and you can subscribe for free to Wissports Radio podcasts on iTunes. And you can keep up with all the latest posts on the website by following us on Twitter at Wisp Sports or head straight to the website wispsports.com. That's it for this episode of Locker Room Talk. You can join Kelly and I in two weeks' time for another fun episode. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.